We look forward to Jeff's continued series tonight on instruction, training, and teaching of children. Great, great series of truths that are seldom presented in a series of lessons on that theme. This is the second in our series on the subject of the gospel Paul preached or characteristics of the gospel. And we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 8 as our text for this series of studies. We noted the first characteristic, the first trait in verse 1, for yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. Paul's preaching was not in vain. And the reason is because those to whom he preached in Thessalonica obeyed the gospel. And therefore his preaching accomplished its desired end. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, leaders, women leaders in that city, not a few. In other words, a number of those leading women in the city obeyed the gospel. A three-week gospel meeting and what a powerful meeting it was because a multitude of men and a large number of leading women in that city obeyed the gospel. That gospel meeting was not in vain. There have been many instances of the gospel being preached to individuals, to a relatively large number to an entire congregation. And the preaching was not in vain, was in vain because it did not accomplish its desired end. Those that had not obeyed the gospel did not obey the gospel. And some who had obeyed the gospel and left their first love didn't come back to it. Though so there have been far more instances than the opposite reaction and end in the proclamation of the gospel. Most of the people who heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost of Acts 2 did not obey the gospel. That was a great gospel meeting and 3,000 souls is worth over 3,000 worlds. No contrast, of course, in those two things. But the large majority rejected the gospel. And down through the book of Acts, though it often talks about additions and sometimes multiplications, 
always the majority rejected the gospel. And as we've noted often, the book of Acts closes with that tragic statement that Paul made based on a tragic scriptural reference. He quoted from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, wherein God basically told Isaiah, your mission is not going to succeed. Your mission is going to be in vain because the preponderance of the nation of Judah will not take heed to it. They're not going to listen to you. Their minds are closed. Their hearts are hardened. God basically said that to each one of those prophets except Jonah. Is that not odd? Jonah did not want his mission to succeed, but it was successful. From the king on the throne to the peasant in the field, robed in sackcloth and ashes, Jonah was a sign, a literal sign. They knew Jonah's experience in the belly of the mighty fish. And when he said, yet 40 days of Nineveh shall be overthrown, that was not in vain preaching. He wanted his preaching to be in vain, but it was a mighty success. And these other prophets basically told, your preaching is going to be in vain. Judah, Israel, the pagan nations, they're not going to listen to you. God told Ezekiel, they're not going to listen to you because they're not going to listen to me. And that was the problem with all of these prophets. Save Jonah. They listened to Jonah because they wanted to hear what God said and did. And that was a national gospel meeting. That was a success. What a wonderful thing if we could have success like that in the nation in which we find ourselves. Can you imagine an entire nation, United States of America, hearing a great gospel sermon and rendering obedience to it? God has told us in every way possible all the way down through the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This nation cannot stand and we'll reach a point where God will no longer bless it but will judge it because of where it finds itself and where it is continuing to go just as rapidly and fast as it can go. It's almost like the masses in this nation can't get to the end of their journey. They have no idea what the end looks like. You couldn't paint in words a picture, a portrait that would make a difference in the lives of the masses of Americans. And a Jonah-like sermon is preached all the way through the Bible to nations like America, trying to tell us of where we're headed and where we're going to end up, and it's not going to be pretty. 
but there will be no Jonah-like response. Paul's preaching in Thessalonica was not in vain. When Jerry and I went to Thompson, Georgia in 1970 and stayed 15 years in hopes of establishing a work where there had never been a congregation of the Church of Christ, we knew that the majority of our preaching and teaching and instruction would be in vain. And of course it was. But the handful of souls that we left there, some 70, some of whom joined us on the journey of 15 years, was worth 15 years times a million. You couldn't attach a number to it. If only one soul had obeyed the gospel, it would have been worth the 15 years of unending labor that we spent there. We really never got discouraged because we knew that the most of the people we would teach would not obey the gospel and our efforts would be in vain. But if in the journey of life, brothers and sisters, we can find just one soul, just one, in the course of 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of preaching, teaching, and effort and trying to live right along with it, we can come to the close of life and we can say it's been worth the journey. It's been worth all of the labor, all of the sacrifice, all of the work for that one soul. We must never lose sight of that or we will find ourselves struggling mightily with discouragement, sometimes to the point of just giving up as far as trying to reach people with the gospel. It was not in vain, that three-week gospel meeting. So many obeyed the gospel. But if just one had obeyed the gospel, it would have been worth all of their efforts. The second thing mentioned about Paul's preaching in this great text is in verse 2. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our gospel to preach unto you, in our God to preach unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Paul's preaching was accompanied by persecution. None of this is strange to your ears. You know these truths well. There are three words in that one verse pointing to this fact. First, suffered. But even after that, we had suffered before. Second, shamefully entreated. And thirdly, we preach the gospel with much contention. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat out and spake unto the women which resorted thither. The women. And a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us. Whose heart the Lord opened that we attended unto the things which were spoken by Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us saying, I want you to come into my household and abide there. And she constrained them. And they partook of her hospitality. Hey, 16, 13 to 15. That preaching was not in vain, but it was followed 
by some real persecution. Paul said we suffered, we were shamefully entreated, and our gospel preaching was accompanied by contention. And this was, as well you know, the nature of Paul's life. It started out like this, and it ended like this. After Lydia and her household were baptized, they continued to preach in the city. There was an individual, a woman that had an evil spirit, and they, she followed with this evil spirit around, and this evil spirit would cry out, these men are showing us the way of salvation. Well, Paul got weary of having the gospel message accompanied by a woman with an evil spirit known to everyone, no doubt, and therefore turned and said, come out of her in the name of the Lord. And the evil spirit came out. Well, when those who were using this woman for money matters saw that the hope of their gain was gone, they got a multitude together and rent their clothes off and brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are teaching things that are not worthy for us. We're Romans. We, we don't need to be listening to and following what they're saying. And so they beat them unmercifully, many stripes, took them to the prison, told the jailer, you put these men in stocks. He put them in the inner prison in stocks. All of us have uh, been persecuted in some way or another in trying to preach the gospel of Christ, but none of us have ever been beaten like that or put in prison for our efforts. And as well you know this story, midnight they're singing and praying. Earthquake, prison doors open, the jailer thinks everybody has escaped, knows he's responsible for it, is about to kill himself. Do thyself no harm, we're all here. What must I do to be saved? And they preached the gospel. It was not in vain. Like Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household were open to the truth. And they obeyed the gospel. And so that congregation in Philippi started with a group of women first. A group of women. Followed by a prison jailer in his household. But it was accompanied by persecution, shameful treatment, and contention. Paul's preaching commenced with that. Acts chapter 9, we know well the story of his conversion. Verse 20 says that he commenced to preach the gospel. And three verses later, the Bible says that his persecution commenced. How offensive is the gospel message? It's the most offensive message known to man. I don't know if you remember or not, we studied a series of lessons years ago here entitled The Offensive Gospel. And all one has to do is just look at just Paul's preaching, see how offensive it was. If someone had asked Paul, Tell me just how offensive the gospel is. Do you have some proof? Paul could have unburdened his shirt. And all they had to do was look. 
at his body, especially his back. It was one unending mass of scar tissue. No wonder he said in Galatians 6, 17, I bear in my body, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how offensive the gospel is? You want to know how the masses of the world hate the gospel? Just look at my body. And the tragedy of it is, that's what he did. That's what he did. Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest. He wanted letters from the authority, the high priest, so that when he reached Jerusalem, he could bind all Christians and put them in prison. In Acts 22 and verse 4, he said, I persecuted this way, the way of Christ and the gospel, the church, Christians. I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. You would have thought, surely in the deep recesses of that man's mind, he would have had some tender feelings, at least toward women. That he would have thought to himself, these men are one thing, but these women, wives and mothers of these children, I'm going to take it out on these men, but I'm going to spare these women. There was no sparing in that man's heart. There were no tender feelings of compassion in that man's heart that filled his heart after he heard and obeyed the gospel. This is what a perverted religion can do to a man. It ruined him for a good part of his life. It ruined his mind. It ruined his thinking. I thought in myself to do, I've forgotten that passage. We've uh, looked at it many times. Let me just turn over here and find it and I'll read it. I tell these young people all the time, don't get old. Don't get old. Here it is, Acts 26, 9 to 11. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. I thought with myself. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, many of the saints did I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. He was all for it. He thought he was doing the Lord's will. He hated Christ. He hated the gospel of Christ. And he hated those who followed Christ with venom and vigor, deep-seated hatred. This is what a false religion would do for a man. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being, listen to this phrase, you know it well, 
exceedingly mad against them. He's insane. He's mad. He's consumed by madness. Responsible madness, responsible insanity. But this man is insane. He is full of hatred. He doesn't even know how to spell compassion, much less practice it. And you know, well, this is no exaggeration. We're reading his own confession, no doubt with a broken and a contrite heart, thinking to himself, how in this world could I have been such a man as that? No tender feelings. Killing these women, making orphans out of those children. Killing wives, killing husbands, tearing family units into shreds, exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even under strange cities. And so now he's receiving the other end of what he did. He's on the receiving end, not the giving end. I've always believed that one, one of the reasons Paul could accept unending beatings, stonings, physical, physical, Beatings, along with the mental, the emotional heartaches that he had to endure. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11. Some of his own brethren hating him. False brethren despised his preaching of the unadulterated gospel. I've always believed that on occasions when they were beating him almost to death, stoning him and thought they'd killed him, that much of the pain and agony of it was erased because all his mind could think about was not the stones pelting his body and the sticks and whips shredding his back into bloody strips of flesh. All he could think about was the screams of little innocent children as he separated them from their parents and took them off to die in bloody dungeons of death. It's hard to adequately contemplate all of this. But it's the way it's always been done. There's a principle in John 16, 18 and 19, where Jesus said to those apostles, uh, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So don't be surprised, he says, if you're hated by the world. They hated me first. The first murder... The first murder grows out of this principle right here. Now think about it. The world hates you, but it hated me first. If you were of the world, they'd love you. 
You were like they were, thought like they thought, lived like they lived, acted like they acted. They'd love you. But you don't act like that, think like that, live like that. You're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, they hate you like they hate me because I'm not of the world either. I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. You're in the world, but not of it. Now, the first murder grows out of that principle right there. First John 3, 12, John says, Not as Cain, don't be like Cain, who was of that wicked one. Who's that? That's the devil himself. He was of the devil, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore, why did he slay him? So he raises the question. Cain was the first murderer. He killed his own brother. John said, why did he do that? Because his brother's deed was righteous and his was evil. Cain and Abel lived in two different worlds. The very two Jesus is talking about. Cain was of the world. He was in it and of it. But Abel, he lived in a different world. Totally different world. He didn't think like Cain. He didn't act like Cain. He didn't live like Cain. They lived in two different worlds. And Cain hated him because of it. Abel's righteous life was a constant rebuke to, Canaan, to Cain's life. And inspiration says he murdered his brother because his brother's deeds were righteous and his was evil. Cain loved God. I mean, Abel loved God, but Cain hated God. Cain hated the truth, but Abel loved the truth. Cain loved the world. He left God's presence and never came home, never came back. Genesis 4, 16. Abel loved God and he was at home with God and he never left. Never left. That is the principle that helps us to understand a lot of things as we move through the Bible. Look at the difference in Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, and that first generation that came out of Egypt. Numbers 14, 24, it's one of the verses that Jeff has taught these kids and others in the class. In talking about Caleb, it says, he had a different spirit. What was that spirit? The very spirit we're talking about. He wholly followed God, fully followed God. Why? Because he was of God, not of the world. He thought the thoughts of God. His heart was like God's. It beat like God's. He was a man of faith and devotion to God, truth, and spiritual thing. And Joshua was just like him. Just like him. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb were like Abel in contrast to Cain and in contrast to that first generation that came out of Egypt. That first generation, not like Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. Those 10 ungodly evil spies came back with that evil report. So different from Joshua and Caleb. They so turned the hearts of those people that they wanted to stone Moses. And they appointed, as we learn later, another leader that would take them back into Egypt. 
They did not have Joshua and Caleb's spirit to follow God fully. In closing, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. And there's a statement in there, this text here, that goes right along with what we're saying. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. What about the women? Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better re resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, more of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sown asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And now the statement, of whom the world was not worthy. The world is not worthy of people like that. The Abels of the world, the Joshua, Caleb's, Moses and Aaron's of the world, the Panama streets of the world. We have a different spirit. We're in the world, but not of it. If some of the leaders in our government could, today could hear some of the sermons and classes that are taught here at Panama Street. They'd do everything within their power to try to destroy this congregation, literally destroy this congregation. They'd know about be people out here carrying sign. We'd come here and there'd be busted out windows everywhere. Somebody would probably set fire to the building because they hate what we stand for here. And all congregations likened to the Panama Street congregation. They are the kings of the world. This country has joined the kings of the world. And they hate the evils of the world. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, mountains, dens, caves of the earth. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Only the gospel and the cross could take care of all of that and open the door for all men and women of faith to be able to go home at last. Paul's preaching was not in vain in Thessalonica. Most of it was in vain everywhere else he went. But at Thessalonica, a three-week gospel meeting, many obeyed the gospel. It accomplished its desired end. But his preaching was accompanied by persecution everywhere he went. We don't know how to be grateful for the country we yet live in where in spite of its problems, which are many, we still have the right to preach the unadulterated gospel without having to go through what we have talked about this morning. If you're present, never obey the gospel. We encourage you by faith to repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you've done that or you need the prayers of the church for any reason, we hope you'll come while we stand and sing.